This morning, um, I want to read you a passage out of the book of Nehemiah. We've been going through the book of Nehemiah in our Rebuild series, um, and then do something a little bit different. It's going to be a briefer message this morning, um, and I'll explain that in a minute. But Nehemiah chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, I just want to read through that. I don't have slides for you this morning, so I'm at, you're actually going to have to listen or actually read it. Uh, there should be a Bible around you if you didn't bring one with you or have one on your phone or your electronic device. Uh, there should be a Bible in one of the chairs around you. And I am reading out of Nehemiah chapter 8. It's page 404 in my Bible. And... That was a joke. It's not page 404 in your Bible. Uh, But if anyone has a pew Bible and has the page on it, we'll let you know what the page is. Uh, But it's Nehemiah chapter 8, and I am going to read from verses 8 through 12. Verses 8 through 12. So Nehemiah, as Pastor Brian had talked about last week, you have these community of people. They finished rebuilding the wall. And, uh, and at this point, after they've rebuilt the wall, uh, they're going to read from God's holy writings before the people. And verses 8 through 12, this is what it says. Uh, the priests are reading. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength." So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Nehemiah 8, verses 8 through 12, and we'll come back to those in a few minutes. Here's what I want to do this morning. Uh, Briefly, uh, I want to just tell you three stories. Uh, three different stories. If, uh, if you were in Burlington last week, and I see a couple people who were, you heard one of these stories already, so uh, don't give it away, the ending. Uh, but uh, I want to tell you three stories. We're going to look a little bit at this passage. I'm going to tell you the beginning of the stories. We're going to look a little bit at this passage I just read. I'm going to tell you the end of the stories, and then we're going to have communion together in a few moments. Um, and I think in the midst of it, We'll hear from God what he has to say to us today. So here we go. First one's of a woman. Uh, A woman who to say that she was unlucky in love would be a vast understatement. She'd been married so many times it would make a Hollywood insider blush. Going to the altar a couple times is not that unusual. Three times... A little, less unco- a little less common. But how about five times? I mean, by the fifth time, she would know the ceremony better than the pastor. Each time, there was the hope that this time would be different. This would be the time it would work out. This would be forever. 
but it never was. Something always came up. The honeymoon was nice, but things didn't stay that way. It was all right for a while, but then trouble in paradise came. At first, she couldn't be sure that it was her or the men. After your third trip down the aisle, you start to have your suspicions, though. After the fourth, you have a pretty good idea. After the fifth, you'd be a fool to think it wasn't you who was the problem. So after the fifth one, she just moved in with a guy and skipped the whole marriage thing. Maybe this will be different. All these marriages took their toll on her. They had repercussions for her and in her social circles as well. A lot of people she used to hang out with didn't come around anymore. People she once considered close friends would just walk the other way when they saw her. There was a stigmatism attached to her. She would do her shopping in the odd hours so that no one would be around just to make sure she didn't run into someone she knew. She might think that, you might think that uh, after this lifetime of heartache, lost love, and social isolation, that she'd be miserable. Perhaps you'd think she'd even be depressed. But this couldn't be further from the truth. If you crossed paths with this woman today, you would find that she is filled with energy and joy and maybe one of the happiest people you would ever meet, even though she experienced such profound and deep pain and sorrow. Next story is about a young man. He's uh, 22 years old. He had uh, grown up and been brought up in the church, but had left that long ago. He pursued the profession of his father and of his grandfather, who were both sailors. So he also became a sailor. He became a sailor on a ship, and when he did, he became uh, a typical sailor of his day and age. He left the faith of his home long behind. In fact, you've heard the expression, curse like a sailor. This guy would even make sailors embarrassed by the way that he talked. Blasphemed God, he was an atheist, and he'd try and convert you to his way of thinking as well. He had, at one point, when he started uh, young, uh, early on becoming a sailor, he had been taken captive on a slave ship. And he had been made to serve as a slave on a ship against his will. He eventually got away, but it didn't turn him away from the sea. In fact, he continued on boats, continued to sail, continued to follow his profession, even as he continued to become meaner and harsher and more crude. One day when he was sailing at 22 years old on March 21st, a storm came up. It's not unusual. Um, he had been through many storms. Figured he'd come through this one as well. Said to one of his uh, fellow sailors, you know, this 
Well, just this will blow over. We'll get through it. And he could tell by the look on this other guy's face that this storm was different. That maybe they weren't going to get through this one. So he climbs up a ladder coming up from below deck. And just as he pokes his head up to the main deck, he sees a wave sweep across the deck and take out one of his fellow sailors, never to be seen again. And he realizes there's a problem. So he runs to the wheel because no one is manning the wheel and he runs to the wheel and he grabs onto that big wheel of that ship for dear life and he holds on to it and steers and attempts to steer that ship through the storm and holds on for hours in the midst of it. Now you might think that this man had you crossed his path later with the difficulty of being forced into slavery earlier in life, with the storm that came up, just giving him another reason to hate this God that he didn't believe in anyway, you might think that he'd be miserable, depressed. But that wasn't the case. In fact, if you crossed paths with this man later in life, you'd find he's one of the most joyful, upbeat, and perhaps happiest people you'd ever meet. Let me shift gears once more, this time not from an individual, but this time to a group of people. This time actually to a nation, the nation that we're looking at in the book of Nehemiah, the nation of Israel in about 400 B.C. Here's a group of people that as a people and a nation had lost everything a couple of generations ago. And they still have not gotten back to where they were before. They lost everything that they held dear. They were forced out of their homes, forced off their land. Their city was destroyed, the walls torn down, and their buildings burned. Those who were permitted to stay had no walls to protect them from outsiders who would exploit them and, protect and uh, oppress them. They had no place to worship God, no church. Their temple had been burned down to the ground. They had no place to practice their worship of God or to meet together. It had all been destroyed. They were forced regularly to recognize that they were servants by paying tax on the land and the food that they no longer owned. They were forced to pay these exorbitant taxes no matter what the conditions around them. Many others were not allowed to stay. Often it was the breast and the brightest that were taken and forced to serve in the halls of their enemy's government, the same government who had killed their own family members and friends, and they were forced to serve in those governments. Many of the others that stayed, uh, those, some were let allowed to live, but many others were killed. And you might think that such a people would be miserable all the rest of their lives. You might think that those people, having lost everything and everything that they would hold dear and everything that they would hold on to, would have no reason to smile, no reason for joy, no reason for rejoicing, but would just be a miserable bunch of people. But in Nehemiah chapter 8, in the passage we just read, of these people it says, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing because they understood 
the words that were declared to them. So have you met these people? In fact, on this day that we read about in Nehemiah, they actually had a lot of joy. They had a lot of rejoicing. So how is it that an individual such as this woman or this young man or a people such as the Jewish people that we read about in Nehemiah can experience such profound pain, disgrace, difficulty, and yet still have such great joy. I mean, isn't that a question that many of us have when we go through times of pain or when we see others go through times of pain and difficulty? That's the one I'd like an answer to because I know I've been through painful times in my life or there's other painful times to come. And I'd like to know, is there a way that I can walk through times of pain and still have an amazing joy? These people in Nehemiah's day were allowed to, were able to do that. And I'd like to know how. I thought, you know, what is it? that a people that experience such miserable circumstances, nothing I've experienced, but some of you, maybe some of you may have traveled from a foreign land or a foreign country, maybe you had to leave a place because of the pain you were experiencing there. Maybe the story that we read about in Nehemiah is not nearly as foreign to you as maybe to some of us who have grown up in the United States. And you've had to understand how do you walk through a time of profound pain and still in some way have joy. There's two ingredients, I think, to getting to the place of profound joy. The first one I've already talked about, and the first one is profound suffering. The truth is, if you're ever going to get to a place of deep-seated, profound joy, you're almost always going to have to go through a place of deep and profound pain and suffering. I'm not talking about happiness. Happiness changes uh, with the circumstances around us. In fact, happiness changes just with the clock in the day. Some studies that have done recently said that your happiness changes throughout the day. You're happy most in the morning, you're happy in the evening, and in the middle of the day, most people, uh, their happiness scale goes way down. I don't know why that is. Maybe you have a reason for it. But your happiness changes not only with the seasons, not only with circumstances, but even in the midst of a single day. But joy is not like that. Deep, seated joy that's unchanging, that's unmoving, it's consistent. And how can you have a joy like that? The first ingredient is profound suffering. And it happened in the woman's life, it happened in the young man's life, and it certainly happened in the lives of the people of Israel. They experienced profound suffering. And they experienced a profound pain. In fact, in this passage we just read, not only did they experience the pain of the circumstances that they had gone through, but they were experiencing another pain because Ezra the priest was standing up and he was reading God's uh, word to them. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? I come to church every Sunday and pastor reads the Bible. I can go home and read it in my house. I can read it on my phone. I can, I can anytime, what's the big deal? 
Well, the big deal is in that day, there's no way you would have read God's word yourself. First of all, you probably couldn't read. You probably couldn't read, but even if you could read, there's no way you would have had a copy of the writings of Moses and God's word, your own little personal private copy like we're able to have today. Only the priest, if even the priest, would have had it. So they would never have heard God's word except on special occasions. And on this day, Ezra opens up the book and he starts reading from the writings of Moses, which were written a thousand years earlier. And the people start to realize, they start to realize how holy God is and how unholy they have been. They start to realize how good God is and how bad they are they start to realize how faithful God has been and how faithless they have been. And to their pain that they've already experienced is added great sorrow. So they start weeping. They start mourning because all of a sudden they're hearing about this great and awesome God and they're measuring themselves up and they're saying, we don't measure up to who God is or who he's asking us to be. So they mourn. They weep. It's actually really the first step of understanding and coming to God is coming to that place where you realize, I need God. Where you realize that when I look at who God is, I don't measure up. And so they weep and they mourn and they grieve So the first ingredient is profound suffering, but here's what happens in this passage that's unique. Most people might think, well, that's the reaction the priests probably want. They probably want, wouldn't you want this reaction of mourning and grieving to God's word? But then something unique happens. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Here's the thing that happens. They have profound suffering. But this is the first day of the seventh month, and that means nothing to you and me, I know. But to them, it was a feast day. It was a feast, they call it the Feast of Trumpets. We don't know a lot about it, we just know it was a feast and there were trumpets involved. Um, And it was supposed to be a day to honor God and a day to rest and a day to recognize who God is. And Nehemiah says, this is not a day for mourning and weeping. This is a day for celebrating And it's actually the beginning of the seventh month, which to them was an important month because they remembered in that month how God had preserved and protected his people as they wandered through the desert. And he said, this is not a day to weep and to mourn. This is a day to celebrate what God has done. So you see, the first ingredient for profound joy is profound suffering, but the second is a profound grace of God. And the place where profound suffering intersects with profound grace is the place where you will find profound joy. 
The place where your pain and suffering and difficulty that is real intersects with God's lavish grace in your life will be the place that results in profound joy in your life. What Nehemiah is saying, this day is not a day for mourning and grieving. This is a day to remember how good God has been to you. This is a day to honor God. This is a day to remember what God has done. We come here on Sunday mornings to do that. We come in and maybe you've got a reason to grieve. Maybe you've got a reason to be sorrowful. But one of the reasons we come into this room, one of the reasons we gather as a people is to contact and intersect with the profound grace of God so that we may walk through our lives with a profound joy and that joy may be our strength. See, there's nothing wrong at times with mourning and grieving, but there are times where it's not appropriate to mourn and grieve. And what Nehemiah says is that because of what God has done for you, you don't have to grieve and mourn on this day. And later on in the Bible, it'll tell us that we do not grieve like those who have no hope. If your faith is in Christ, you don't grieve the same way as those with no hope. So we come on Sundays to worship and we come to gather and we come to have our profound sorrow intersect with the profound grace of God so that we might have a profound joy that gives us strength to walk through the rest of our week, the rest of our life. So you've got a place at work that's kind of difficult to live out your faith. Maybe you've got people around you who mock you, and oh, here comes, uh, here comes the, the Christian. Oh, stop talking. Here she comes. Here he comes. Oh, we, we have to change the way we act. Maybe you've got a place in your life, your work, your school, where you experience some kind of persecution for following Christ. Maybe it's more profound than just words. What gives you the strength to walk through that? I would say that it's the joy of God And that joy of God is rooted in profound suffering, encountering profound grace, and you've got a joy of God that will allow you to walk through anything that may come your way. What gives the single parent the strength to, on a Sunday morning, the only day you have to sleep in to wrestle your kids out of bed and bring them to church on a Sunday morning, or the parent that does that? Why? Because God's joy, intersecting with God's grace, God's joy gives you the strength to live this life that he has called you to live. In a couple weeks, you're going to have Jenny Falcon come and visit here, and she's going to share about her ministry in Swaziland to orphans for the last 10 years. What gives a young woman the strength to leave the comforts of the United States of America and to go and serve the poorest of the poor in the world, orphans in a small little landlocked country in Africa. 
It's the joy of the Lord. It's where the grace of God has impacted and, and encounters suffering such that joy is found there so that Jenny goes and brings God's grace with her, impacting the profound suffering in Swaziland and in that place can be found joy. It's the importance of it. There are times where mourning is a natural result that comes about from pain in our life. But we should also know that when the grace of God comes and intersects that mourning and that sorrow, that we always have the potential and we always have the opportunity and we always have the ability to walk through it with joy. Many of um, some of your friends may have this week started, uh, some of you have friends that are, Catholic or other churches may have started and celebrated Ash Wednesday and started their Lent fast. Um, and I think it's good to fast, and, and I, you know, there, there's definitely benefits to that. We believe in fasting. Uh, the Lent fast is a particular fast that uh, Roman Catholics especially and leading up to Easter, would recognize and observe. Does anyone know how many days the Lenten fast is? 40. That's what we think. It is 40, sort of. Sort of. It's actually 46. 46 days. Ash Wednesday this past week to Easter Sunday on April 16th is actually 46 days. The reason it's 46 days, you have Easter and Ash Wednesday, but the reason it's 46 days is because when they started this church way back, uh, they did not uh, and they would not fast on the Sundays. The Sundays were not considered days of fasting. And whenever you were fasting for those 40 days of Lent, you would not fast on that Sunday. Because Sunday was a day of feasting, not fasting. Because Sunday was the day that the early disciples chose to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that is the day he was raised from the dead. And so on Sundays, they would recognize that the profound grace of God has come and this is a day for feasting and not fasting. This is a day to celebrate. This is a day to honor God and not a day to mourn and to fast. And I think it's interesting because it goes right along with Nehemiah who says, this is not a day for mourning, this is a day for celebration. And how can you celebrate as a people? How can you celebrate when everything's been taken away from you? How can you celebrate when you read the word of God and you realize how unholy and, and, and how, how, in, how faithless you've been? And Nehemiah says, you can celebrate because of how good God has been. And where the grace of God, the profound grace of God, intersects with your profound sorrow, it gives the ability to have profound joy and strength to walk through the day that God has called you to today and whatever God may call you to in the future. And so it's the intersection of grace and sorrow that leads to joy, that allows Nehemiah to stand up in front of these people and say, today, go. Go and eat the fat Go and celebrate with a feast. Go and share with your friends. Go and celebrate 
because of how good God has been to you. And so we return to the stories. The woman who had five husbands was experiencing profound suffering for her actions. Her story is actually found in John chapter 4. Talks about her as the Samaritan woman at the well. Wasn't normal in her time to go to the well and carry in the middle of the day, but that's where we find her. She's at a well getting water in the middle of the day. Wasn't the easiest time to carry heavy jugs of water in the heat of the day, but it had one thing that was a benefit, and that was privacy. No one else was there in the middle of the day, except on this day. On this day, she found a man sitting beside the well, and his name was Jesus. And this man told her everything about her. He said, you have five hus- you've had five husbands. He said, the guy you're living with now is not your husband. But then he also said, ask me for living water and I'll give it to you. You drink the water of this well and you'll thirst again. But I have a spiritual living water to offer you that you will not thirst again. That'll quench a deeper thirst in you. And in that moment, she knew two things. She knew she was fully known and she knew she was fully loved. And at that intersection of profound suffering and profound pain and profound love and profound grace, she found, and what it produced was a profound joy in her life. So much so that she left her jug there at the well, ran back to all the people who would persecute her, who would talk about her, who would make the snide comments. She ran back to them and she said, come and meet a man who told me everything about me. And I think by implication, not only knew everything about me, but still accepted and loved me and offers me this living water, come meet this man. Because Jesus also said that he was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And this place where profound sorrow met profound grace allowed her to have a profound joy. And in the same way in your life where your sorrow contacts and comes into contact with the grace of God, there is the opportunity for joy even through difficulty. Did her circumstances change? No. Was she still the woman that had had five husbands and was living with someone who wasn't a husband? Was she still the woman that her her community would ostracize and look down on? That hadn't changed, but she had encountered the profound grace of God, a God who would know her and love her, and it changed everything. It changed her mourning and her sorrow into joy. And the sailor March 21st, 1748 is when that storm came up and he held on to that wheel for 11 hours. And while he was holding on to the wheel of that ship trying to steer it through the storm, he did something he hadn't done in a long time. He cried out to God for mercy. He said, God, have mercy on me and if you spare my life, I will live my life for you. And this sailor who was a blasphemer and an atheist in that moment gave his life over to God and God spared his life and some things changed in an instant. Started reading his Bible, stopped blaspheming, stopped cursing, 
Some things took a little more time. It would be years before he would stop captaining slave ships. But eventually, he became a pastor in a little town called Only England. In this little town in Only England, he would preach to his little congregation on a regular basis, and something happened there that never happens these days. But back then, something happened, and that was the people he would preach to would forget what he preached. And I know that doesn't happen now, but back then, people were so different than they are now. They would forget what he preached. And so he came up with a system because he heard the handmaidens singing songs and he thought, they remember the songs. So if I can write a song to go with my message, maybe they won't remember the message, but maybe they'll remember the song. And so he started doing that. So he started writing songs that would go with the message. And in 1772, as the year was coming to an end, he was trying to come up with a song for New Year's Day of 1773. And he started writing a song that was really a biography of his life. It was really a biography of his life, and the song was called Faith's, uh, Faith's Review and Expectation. Faith's Review and Expectation. And it was first sung for the first time in a little church in only England on January 1st, a Friday, 1773, and the first words of that song are amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We know it better by amazing grace. It later became known by that title and later became one of the most beloved songs sung and recorded throughout the world. Amazing grace was sung by both sides of the Civil War, it was used as a requiem by the Cherokee Indians on the Trail of Tears. Civil rights protesters sang it during freedom marches. It was sang on the day when MLK Jr. gave his speech, I Have a Dream. It was played when Nelson Mandela was released from prison. It was played when the Berlin Wall came down. And it was sung on September 11th, 2001, after the terrorist attacks. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. And it came about from a sailor who had totally left his faith, but in a moment of profound sorrow, experienced the profound grace of God and shared with the world a song that says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace that led that my fears relieved." And it's in these places that if you met John Newton, who wrote that song, I don't think you'd find someone who's bitter and angry. You'd find someone who's full of joy, trusting God because of the amazing grace that had been shown to him. And one day, if you crossed paths with this woman at the well, you wouldn't find someone who was bitter and depressed and angry. You'd find someone with profound joy because of fact that she came in contact with Jesus. And what about you? You've experienced pain in your life. Maybe you're going through a painful time now. Is it possible for you to walk through times of pain and difficulty with joy, with the joy of the Lord as your strength? Is it possible for you to be able to walk through, not in mourning and grieving, 
resigned, that there's nothing that can be done and it's difficult and so why bother hoping? Or can you walk through with a profound sense of joy? Not fake, not put on, talking about a joy that comes because of your intersection with the profound grace of God. As we come to this communion table, as we close out our service this morning, the reason I wanted to wait until the end of service to celebrate communion with you this morning is because I can't think of a better place, more profound example than the cross, where the profound suffering intersects profound grace and brings joy. In fact, the scripture says of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And it's at that place where our sorrow, our sin, our unholiness, meets the profound grace of God who said, I will come, I will be the sacrifice for your sins that allows us to experience joy because of what God has done. If you're here and you've got sorrow and pain and not joy, I'd be so bold to at least even ask, is it because you lack an understanding of the profound grace of God? And if you've got sorrow and you've got pain and you're grieving and you're mad at God maybe and you're mad at other people and you're bitter, could it be that what it is you lack is a greater understanding of God's grace in your life, a greater understanding of what he has done because when I understand that, when I understand God's grace, then joy is able to be formed in my life. So I'm going to ask those who are going to help me to serve to come forward and our worship team to come back. And I'm going to invite you this morning to celebrate communion with joy. And I'll invite you this morning to celebrate with joy. Yes, there is the aspect of communion that you're to search your heart. There is the aspect of communion that we examine ourselves. But there is also this aspect of communion that, Lord, look what you have done. The profound grace of God. And no matter what is in your life that is there, that is causing you pain, that is causing you sorrow, that is causing you difficulty, it is not greater than God's grace that's available for you today. So as you're served, we'll worship the Lord. And you'll, if you're a guest with us here today, you'll be served a little piece of bread and juice. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to partake with us, whether this is your home church or not. Jesus is your Lord. We want you to partake with us as a part of the family of God. You'll receive a piece of bread and a cup of juice. And if you'll just hold on to it till everyone's served. We'll partake together in a few moments. But as you're served, I'd invite you to consider the wonderful grace of God that is available to you today. Let's worship together as you're served. Hey, thanks again for listening to this sermon from the Belmont campus of Mount Hope. If you live in the Belmont area, we'd love to have you join us each Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you'd like to know more about Mount Hope Christian Center with campuses in Burlington and Belmont, Massachusetts, 
you can visit our website at www.mounthope.org.